0: Hi, I'm Rick Steves. A big part of the fun of travel is venturing to places that immerse you in a world you'd never experience at home. And those kinds of experiences are best when you're not surrounded by lots of tourists. That's where you find the local culture relaxed, welcoming you not as part of its economy, but as part of the party. That's what I call going through the back door. And that's the focus of today's edition of Travel with Rick Steves. Get ready for some serious globe trotting as we experience the amazing wildlife of the Galapagos Islands and the amazing people life of the republics of Central Asia.
1: Azerbaijan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Karakav, Pakistan, Kazakhstan, then, Kyrgyzstan... it's back
0: home for a road trip through the southwestern USA from Dallas and the Santa Fe Trail to the Grand Canyon and Indian reservations. We're traveling off the beaten path in the hour ahead. That and your calls are coming right up as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. It's a busy hour ahead as we get way off the beaten track. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. On today's edition of Travel with Rick Steves, we're finding out how you can visit what's without question one of the most unusual and ecologically delicate places on Earth, the Galapagos Islands. The Galapagos are arguably the best place anywhere to get up close to a festival of unusual animals. We'll learn how humans are welcome, but only if they tread lightly, from the traveler who wrote the book on the Galapagos. Then we spin the globe 180 degrees and land in the stands of Central Asia, Turkic culture spreads from Istanbul all the way to China. With our Turkish guest, we'll learn how Turkey has long been and still is the cultural leader of this little-understood and rarely-visited corner of our planet. And back home, we'll get about as exotic as possible in the USA, road-tripping through the desert southwest. Let's start with your comments and questions at 877-333-RICK or send us an email to radio at ricksteves.com. And we have Fernando in Indianapolis. How are you doing, Fernando?
2: I'm actually uh, just visiting Indianapolis. I'm uh, actually from Salt Lake City. Oh,
0: you yeah, are all right.
2: And uh, my question is, I'm actually looking forward to uh, a trip that I'm planning to go to Croatia, the Adriatic Sea, and kind of do a tour around that area. And wanted to know if you know of any back doors. I'm a big fan of all of your backdoor finds throughout Europe. And just if you had any uh, that you could suggest to me.
0: Sure. Well, when we're thinking about uh, Croatia, remember we're talking the former Yugoslavia. And mm-hmm. Yugoslavia was, um, uh, boy, was seven or eight different uh, little nationalities all glued together in a way that didn't quite work. They said the only guy who was really a Yugoslav was Tito. And when he mm-hmm. passed away, uh, it was just a matter of time before the countries would uh, fall back into their own independence again. The luckiest two countries of the former uh, Yugoslavia, I think, which the the word Yugoslavia, by the way, meant uh, the union of the South Slavs. So these were all the South Slavic nations. The luckiest two groups were the uh, Slovenians and the Croatians. And uh, Slovenia is that little Alpine country just underneath the Austrian Alps, and its capital is Ljubljana, and it's a sort of a mountain wonderland, and it's beautiful. And then Croatia is famous for the Adriatic coastline, and of course Dubrovnik, which is called the pearl of the Adriatic. Uh, you'll want to see Dubrovnik, but that's certainly no um, back door. But I love it. I was just there. It was one of the last places I was at. Um, and Split is the big city, the most visit-worthy big city in Croatia. And I'm a big fan of Split. It's much less tourist. It's it's, it's plenty used to tourists, but it's, it's not the resort that Dubrovnik is. But then you've got the opportunity to do some exploring. And I would go into the interior, and there is, um, uh, well, you know, you've got Bosnia, which is uh, war-torn and quite poverty-stricken. But I've talked to travelers who have gone there, they've found it fascinating. I was fascinated by a trip up into uh, Montenegro, and it's up in the mountains, and it uh, sort of a feels like almost a medieval kingdom, and they've got a capital there called Sintinja. Centinja, something. I'm not even sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but that is a fascinating land, and you go up there, and um, it's like another worldly experience. It's really quite a huge difference from the uh, touristic Dalmatian coast, so I would highly recommend that. Also, I had great time myself driving all around the perimeter of Albania. And there's a resort lake called Ohrid, which is just uh, a little bit east of Albania, which is uh, quite an exciting place to stop by.
2: So you would recommend driving instead of taking the trains?
0: Well, I drove, but I I wouldn't necessarily recommend that. There's plenty of bus. You know, the bus connections are great there. The trains are miserable, if almost non-existent. But they would rely on buses more heavily there than in more wealthy countries, that's for sure. Uh, There is a famous uh, religious pilgrimage place called uh, Metagorgia. I don't know if you've heard of that, but Medagorja is really popular on the on the Pilgrim Trail, and it's quite a fascinating town in the interior, a couple hours' drive from Dubrovnik. But get a guidebook to uh, the former Yugoslavian states. There's plenty of those guidebooks out. I don't write any, any, any guidebooks on former Yugoslavia itself, and you'll have uh, an opportunity to kind of explore. I was just researching for my guidebook in Croatia and Slovenia, and I hardly saw another American the whole time. A lot of Americans think it's still suffering from the war, you know, but the war is long gone, and and Dubrovnik was heavily bombed, but they've built it up now. You can stand on the wall overlooking Dubrovnik, and you see this wonderfully intact medieval town, and you realize half of the uh, tile roofs are bright red, and half of the tile roofs are dark red, and then you realize, oh, the bright red tile roofs are the ones that were bombed and rebuilt in the last decade. It's a different ambience in Dubrovnik now that they've they've, uh, had this... uh, terrible war in their recent past, and uh, they're just putting their economy back together. The Germans are there, which means that, you know, it's, it's not discovered yet, and the Americans are gingerly coming back, and pretty soon all the Japanese will be there, and that, that'll mean it's going to be uh, in, its, in its full tourist
2: mode. Great. I hope
0: that gives you some ideas.
2: I just wanted to thank you for all your guidebooks. It's definitely made my trips to Europe much more Thank enjoyable. you very much.
0: And, you know, before we go, when we're talking about backdoors in Eastern Europe, my favorite is Bulgaria. I love Bulgaria. When I was there working on my TV show, I just thought, "There, this is Americans are really missing something by not going to Bulgaria." Check that out. Bulgaria is famous as the most subservient of the Warsaw Pact nations. I mean, they were joking that it should become the 18th republic of the Soviet Union or whatever. Um, when you go to Bulgaria, it's just a, a fascinating and. and detached kind of country, and also the Baltic states, uh, Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia up there across from Finland are the most fortunate part of the former Soviet Union. The, the three Baltic capitals are just beautiful to visit. Okay. And you'll okay. find B&Bs, private homes, all over Eastern Europe, and that's your budget trick because a lot of the hotels cost the same, basically, as the expensive Western capitals. Uh, uh, you know, the, the food and the entertainment and the guides and, uh, and the uh, transportation is very cheap in Eastern Europe, but hotels are quite expensive. But if you stay in people's homes, that's where you will find uh, you'll be enjoying the uh, local price standards.
2: Absolutely, and that's a great recommendation for all your travels. Yeah, I think, I think so, too. Absolutely. All right,
0: Fernando, good luck. Thank you, Rick. We have Oren on the line in Seattle. Thanks for your call.
2: Oh, you're welcome. What I'm wondering about, uh, since lately you've been saying that Eastern Europe is a good value for travelers uh, in light of the weakness of the dollar, what's a good way to get to Eastern Europe from the West Coast? Uh, Would you suggest flying directly, or are there other ways?
0: Well, you're calling from Seattle, and Mm -hmm. so you fly to Europe like I do. You've got a choice of uh, basically British Air, uh, what Northwest, and uh, SAS. And I re- I go SAS a lot and I change in Copenhagen and I find that within an hour of my arrival, actually wherever I, I land in Europe uh, at the hub, there would be a connecting flight to whatever major city I want to go to in Eastern Europe. If you want to get there efficiently, I would just go right to your destination via your hub in Europe and it's surprisingly inexpensive when you connect it with your flight from the United States. So from an economic point of view, I think a travel agent would advise you to get where you want to go rather than stopping and then going again. Do you follow me there? Yeah, exactly, yeah. I mean, in other words, if you got off in London and then you bought a ticket to Warsaw that would be more expensive than just changing in London and continuing straight to Warsaw.
2: Right. Well, it's just that I've noticed uh, Ryanair and some of the other budget airlines that have come along in Europe lately offer some...
0: Now, that's a very good point. In fact, I was just reading a tip from one of my readers uh, about that the other day. If you were the more aggressive budget traveler, and we all need to be that these days with where our dollar's at, you could get the cheapest flight into London and then consider changing there onto one of these uh, super discount airlines and flying for these almost hard-to-believe prices further east, like you were saying Ryanair, right?
2: Yes, yes. Ryanair is probably the one that stands Mm -hmm. up, but there are, I guess, a whole bunch of them now.
0: Then you have to do the arithmetic, and it's very important to be a little more sophisticated in your analysis than just comparing the dollars, because you're going to fly into Heathrow Airport in London, and you'll have to go out to one of the uh, obscure airports around London to catch your cheap flight on. Mm -hmm. It, It wouldn't be walking across the terminal at Heathrow. You'd have right. to go into London and take a train for an hour north or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when all the dust settles, you want to factor that all in.
2: Right, Yeah.
0: And I still think if you get a cheap flight from from the United States to your ultimate destination, and you factor in your open-jaw's opportunities, so let's say you're interested in Eastern Europe, you could fly. You could start your trip in Helsinki,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and then you're an hour-and-a-half hydrofoil away, away, a ride away from Tallinn, in the capital of Estonia.
2: Oh, right, yeah.
0: And that would be a great way to start, because Helsinki is not so nerve-wracking as flying into Bucharest or something like that, you ah. see. And from Helsinki, a lot of the Finnish people, they just go over to Tallinn in Estonia for a hairdo. I mean, it's, that, <laughs> you know, it's just so cheap over there, and it's just a fun day out.
3: Oh, that, that, that was something I hadn't thought of. That, yeah, so there's this
0: very cheap and wonderful hydrofoil ride that cuts across there every hour. And then you would want to... I was getting, an, I guess, to the idea of flying open jaws. So then you would fly home from, let's say, Vienna. Okay, so okay. you'd start in Helsinki, fly home from Vienna, talk to your travel agent, and see what it would cost you to fly, just for fun, in and out of Helsinki, and then say, but what if I fly into Helsinki and out of Vienna? And I bet it's, a, it's uh, essentially the same cost.
2: Okay, well, thanks a lot, Rick.
0: Uh, what well, wait a second, and right, I want to know where you're going in Eastern Europe, though.
2: Well, I was uh, thinking mainly of uh, Budapest and Prague.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, that's where everybody's going, you know. right. I mean, right. of all the Americans traveling in Eastern Europe, I bet half of them at any given point are in Prague and Budapest. Now, that's not a bad thing. You just got to realize those are the great destinations. Those are the obvious slam dunks. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're going to be a little more expensive, a little more crowded, and they've got a lot to offer, that's for sure. Those are clearly the most interesting two big cities. Mm -hmm. Eastern Europe is so trendy. If you could see the main stuff, but make a point just to get out and and go to a couple of towns that you've never heard of. I think that would really be a good idea, and you'd be surprised what a different reception you'll get. When you're in Prague or Budapest, you're just a walking dollar sign, you know? Oh, right. Yeah, and that's yeah. just something we got to live with. I mean, they're great cities, but you're going to be seen as a wealthy American tourist and treated accordingly. It's hard to get a taxi to use his meter, for instance. Ah, really? Yeah. So, I mean, you can overcome that, but you just got to be on the ball. But you go to some small town, and all, I mean, with our tours, one of my favorite things is we visit a little small town where they've never seen another American tourist, and we go to the grade school. And the principal loves it. We drop in with 20 Americans, and we have lunch with them. We sit on these little tiny, you know, remember the, the chairs when we were in second grade? Yes. And we sit on those kind of chairs, and you have the wieners in the blanket or whatever is on the menu that day for the kids. Oh. And, and then they have an assembly, and uh, they ask us questions through a translator, and we ask them questions, and it's a fascinating cultural exchange now you can do something on the order of that when you're on your own in these towns that really don't see Americans every day it's exciting to think of what's going on in Eastern Europe now is half of the people there have no living memory of communism you know it's been 15 years or so since they uh, have had their f- freedom and their uh, life is changing so fast for these people and, and it's just uh, an exhilarating time and for us to be able to explore and, and meet and share culturally is, is a beautiful part of your travels
2: oh yeah definitely that, that yeah. sounds wonderful
0: have a great time and thanks for your call Well, thank you, Rick. Mm -hmm. Bye now.
2: Bye-bye.
0: Aaron from Tracy, California, emailed us and wants to go to the Vatican Museum but doesn't want to do a multi-hour tour. What's the best way to get tickets? Well, Aaron, when you go to the Vatican Museum, the major concern is not having to wait in line. And there is a line notorious halfway around the Vatican Wall, it seems. And what you want to do is not go before or after a closed day. It's generally closed on Sundays. It's open one Sunday a month, but then and it's free on that Sunday. It's the last Sunday of the month. And you really want to avoid it on the free day because uh, then it's double crowded. And I think it's good to go late in the day. Uh, Generally, it closes at uh, 4.45. And remember, major museums in Europe often close their ticket booth an hour or so before they close the museum itself. In the case of the Vatican Museum, the last entry is 90 minutes before closing time. So go late in the day, slip in right at the very end, uh, but be careful you don't miss that deadline. And remember, they start shutting things down from the Sistine Chapel on. So when you're in the Sistine Chapel, you want to get to that first, and then you'll hear a a big voice come out, and that's time to clear it out. Uh, You can take tours, but um, I wouldn't bother with tours. I would just go there on my own. We journey from the Galapagos to Central Asia for a taste of the exotic, coming up next on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. I'm Rick Steves, and I'm glad you're the adventurous type because we're about to do the impossible. Next, we're going way off the beaten track, visiting the Galapagos Islands, the highlands of Central Asia, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, and a couple more stands, and the dramatic mesas of the U.S. desert southwest. We're travel partners, and right now, you're traveling with Rick Steves. right now, we're going to go natural on the Galapagos Islands. I've got with me a man who's written a guidebook to Ecuador and the Galapagos, and his name is Julian Smith. Julian, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now, the Galapagos Islands, uh, it really is uh, uh, part of Ecuador. Is that right? Yes, it is. So when you go there, normally do Americans... I mean, Galapagos are so popular. Do you go there uh, direct from the the USA, or do you uh, jump off from Ecuador?
4: You have to fly through Ecuador, either through Quito or Guayaquil on the mainland.
0: So Ecuador controls this...
4: Yeah, yeah, they took over a few hundred years ago.
0: And they and I, I understand you can't even just uh, drop in and tool around on your own. You have to do it in, with an escort, basically.
4: Yeah, the Ecuadorian National Park Service controls tourism very closely because they're very conscious of the possible impact of so many tourists coming to the Galapagos. There's about 100,000 people that visit every year. Roughly. So everybody that goes has to be on a guided tour that are strictly controlled and only visit uh, specific visitor sites to spare the rest of the islands from the impact.
0: And have they effectively uh, preserved the nature from the uh, trampling of all the tourists?
4: They've done a pretty good job. They only allow tourists on about 5% of the entire uh, island chain.
0: Is that because they love nature or because they just don't want to wreck up a profitable part of their tourist industry?
4: I'd say a little bit of both.
0: All right. The Galapagos Islands are 600 miles off of the coast of Ecuador, uh, and you have to go there basically on a tour, flying out there from Ecuador. Give me just a quick rundown, Julian, on uh, your options when you essentially book a tour to experience the Galapagos.
4: Well, most people go on what they call liveaboard tours, where you go from island to island on boats, and you sleep and eat on board boats. And twice a day, usually, you go on a land visit using small dinghies they call pangas. And these tours usually last about five to eight, ten days, depending on uh, what you want to see and what class of boat you book it on.
0: So if you had ten days to uh, of a vacation, I would imagine you wouldn't want to spend it all in the Galapagos. You could mix it nicely with Ecuador and the Galapagos.
4: Yeah, you could. You could. You would probably have to do a shorter Galapagos trip, probably one of the five-day ones, and you have to take into account half day on either end to get there and back. But you can still see an awful lot in three or four days there. But it's
0: basically just an hour or two flight, isn't it, from uh, Quito?
4: Yeah, about two to three.
0: Two to three hours. Now, you get out to the Galapagos, and you don't go out there to see cute towns, but are there towns? Is there actually a population out there?
4: Yeah, not very many, though. The largest town is probably about 5,000 people.
0: And that would be where the airport is?
4: Uh, yeah, on the same island.
0: And then you so you fly in and you get on your boat, and basically then it's just uh, dinghies into shore to check things out, but you're essentially living on the boat.
4: Yeah, you're living on the boat. You can either choose a small boat, and they call them motor sailors, where they can either sail or motor around with maybe 10 to 12 guests, all the way up to 100-person cruise ships.
0: I'm talking with Julian Smith, who writes the Moon Guidebook to Ecuador. Julian, that's a lot of travel to see some... Um, I don't know, what do you see out there? Some birds and some lizards. Tell me, sell me on the Galapagos. Uh, this nature just must be magical.
4: It is. It's, it's one of the few places that I've ever been that is just absolutely unique in the world. You go there and your first impressions are it's kind of a desert, scrubby islands. They're not, you know, impressive and gorgeous, covered with green like, say, Hawaii is. But then you go out onto the onto shore and you see animals that you've never seen anywhere else. Things like blue-footed boobies that have bright blue feet and do a crazy little mating dance to tortoises in the highlands that are four feet across, wow. swimming marine iguanas, they even have a little penguin species that wandered up from Antarctica.
0: Is that right? Now, yeah. w- when you go over there, is it all one big nature field trip, or can you actually do some uh, swimming and water skiing and uh, any sort of activities as far as enjoying your, your uh, cruise?
4: Yeah, a lot of ships carry uh, snorkeling equipment with them. The water's a little on the chilly side, but... You can still get in, and in half an hour, depending on where you are, you can find yourself uh face mask to eyeball with a penguin or uh, scuba diving with uh, sea lions. The scuba diving there is, is probably among the best in the world. I was just there a little while ago and saw things that I've never seen underwater, whale sharks, her, uh, schools of hammerheads, just an incredible place
0: got an email from Joyce in Tucson, and she wonders what is the best time to visit the Galapagos, and uh, how many days would be a minimum to make it worthwhile?
4: I would say if you're going to go all that way, take at least a week. Go on a week-long trip. Um, and in terms of the best time of year, it really varies depending on, you know, the high tourist season is usually around our summertime and around the holidays at the end of the year. I like months like April when it's kind of in between seasons. They have a wet and a dry season there, and it's kind of on the cusp and it's not really in the middle of a high tourist season.
0: Would there be the other side of that, April and also October or something?
4: Yeah, October, November, and April, I'd say, Mm would be the
0: best. Stephen from Connecticut emailed us, and he wonders, uh, how do you contact a legitimate local boat tour company for the Galapagos? Is a legitimacy a concern, or is it carefully government-regulated, as it sounds like most things are in the
4: Galapagos? They are government-regulated, but there's there's a wide latitude of quality, so you really want to go with the... An established tour company. Uh, I list a bunch in my Ecuador guidebook, or you can go to companies online like Safari Tours that operate and book tours for a wide variety of of different boats. There's probably about in the neighborhood of a hundred different boats to choose from. So, it's a good thing to ask around, see if anybody you know has been on a tour that they liked, or contact the company down there and ask for some recommendations.
0: Julian. How much would it cost to take one of these tours, Ballpark? I would imagine there are budget versions and luxurious versions.
4: Yeah, the, the fees start at about for a week. Keep in mind that this includes all your, you don't have to pay for a hotel because you're staying on board a boat, all your meals, and all your guiding expenses. They start at about $800 to $1,000 for a week, which is including the $300 plane flight to get out there, hmm. and they go up from there.
0: So basically, you go down to Ecuador. I mean, there's lots of uh, excitement in Ecuador. You can Quito is, uh, what, uh, 10,000 feet above sea level, one of the most uh, beautiful colonial towns in South America. You can cross the Continental Divide and check out the Amazon Basin. Also, then you can uh, factor in about a week to go out to the Galapagos Island. Sounds like a great option.
4: Yeah, yeah. I'd say if you can swing it, maybe about two, two and a half weeks at the minimum, to see uh, the best that the country has to offer.
0: Julian, people can get a hold of you at your website, juliansmith.com, is that right?
4: Yeah, yeah, they can see uh, photographs, uh, links to my books and articles, and they can even contact me if they like.
0: Very nice. Julian, J-U-L-I-A-N, smith.com. We'll also have that at the ricksteves.com website in the radio corner. Julian Smith, author of The Moon Handbook to Ecuador, thank you so much for your information on the Galapagos Islands. Thanks for having me. next stop is on the opposite side of the globe as my friend Melika Seval explains how Turkey's influence spreads from Istanbul all the way to the Great Wall of China. It's coming right up on Travel with Rick Steves. Right now, we're traveling deep into Asia with a Turkish focus. I've got with me a friend and fellow tour guide, Melika Saval, who's joined us from Turkey. And uh, melly has been a tour guide in Turkey for 35 years. She's led tours with my com- company for 10 years. And today, Meli leads special tours around Turkey and as far east as Mongolia. Meli, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you, Rick.
0: Something fascinating for me is the power of Turkish culture beyond the, the modern country of Turkey. How many people live in Turkey and how many people speak Turkish languages?
1: We have only 72 million people living in Turkey, but Turkish, which is an Ural Altaic language, is spoken by more than 250 million people.
0: Wow, so a quarter of a billion Turkish-speaking people and um, 70% of them are outside of Turkey.
1: They're outside of Turkey. They live between Altai Mountains and Turkey, stretching as far stretching east, stretching as far as China,
0: as China. So you've got uh, what? Turkmenistan. What are these Turkish nations? Tell us some of the names.
1: Azerbaijan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Karakalpakistan, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan. Uyghuristan, and Mongolia.
0: Wow, I could never say all those words, but I would (laughs) love to travel in those places. Now, you actually take groups to some of these places.
1: I actually take groups to all of these countries because I feel like after having been to Turkey, they are interested in finding out some aspects of our culture in turkey and the best way of finding out about those aspects of culture is to go visit the roots of the turks
0: most of these people were in the former soviet union and during the the age of the soviet union those people's cultures were kept down somewhat and today they're able to uh, fly their cultural flags a little more vigorously is that true
1: actually the russians did not make these people forget their language, which is very important. But the Russians did make them forget the formal religion. So they've lost their religious identity, but they maintained their cultural identity, excluding the religion. So when we go to those countries, you can still see a Turkman slightly different from Uzbek, Uzbek slightly different from Kazakh.
0: Now, during this time of uh, being controlled by the Soviet Union, were there underground currents of uh, national um, movements and, and uh, unity and pan Turkishism or anything like that that was going on?
1: There was, yes, and it was led in Turkey, but they failed because we don't believe in ethnic identity to be a political identity anymore. So, so it's not that really a force, is not a force anymore. But
0: I remember there were these like um, f- markets where they would have all of these uh, wolves, which is the emblem, I think, of pan-Turkism. Yes. Yeah, But that's a, a thing of the past. No, that's really.
1: the thing of the past.
0: But doesn't Turkey have a, a radio station similar to the Voice of America? We spread our values through the Voice of America. Our government pays for it and it spreads our, our values. Turkey is seen as the sees itself as the cultural leader of these three times as many people that are outside of its own political border.
1: Not only through media that's radio or TV but through education. When you go to those countries you see the importance of the Turkish presence there in education. Many Turkish universities they mm. have acquired Turkish alphabet and many students come to Turkey for their further education. So,
0: Turkey is the most developed and advanced and um, prosperous nation of all of, of these Turkish
1: Turkic. speaking countries.
0: Tell me those countries again
1: Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Karakal, Pakistan, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Uyghuristan, and Mongolia.
0: What about Nagastan? Is there a little place? What's that little tiny place by Mount Ararat? Nagastan. lots of Daustan. Nachaban. Nachaban, that was it. Okay, now, if one wants to travel in these places, of course they can join you on one of your tours, or they could travel on their own if they were adventurous. What is the visa situation?
1: You have to get visa from China to go to Uyghuristan. You you don't need visa to Mongolia, but all the other stands will require visa, and you can apply personally.
0: Unlike Americans going to Europe, where you don't need a visa, obviously, uh, you just need a passport. To travel in all of these stands, you need a visa. You can get it from the appropriate embassy in the United States. In the States.
1: United States, except for Mongolia, you don't need visa.
0: Okay. What about health? Can an American travel through these countries without getting really sick? No problem. You've they taken are Americans, civilized though. countries. Language? Have, does anybody speak language, English?
1: Language? Uh, tough. Some. It's a little tough.
0: So, yes. and you wouldn't have your... You'd, well, you'd need to speak Turkish, basically. Or hire a local guide.
1: Yeah, hire a local guide.
0: Are there guidebooks on these countries?
1: Uh, British has quite a few books, but they're not as extensive. Lonely Planet has a guidebook.
0: There's a very small number of people traveling there, therefore there's not enough demand to merit a good guidebook. Cost, is it expensive to travel in these countries? Roughly how much would it cost a day to travel in these countries?
1: About $50 with food and hotel and transportation.
0: Bus transportation and so on. So for a lot of people, traveling to Europe, Turkey is the exciting way to spice up that trip. But if you're traveling to Turkey, an exciting way to spice up that trip is to head east into these farther reaches of uh, the Turkish cultural sphere. Yes. Meli, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for
1: having me here, Rick.
0: Happy travels from Istanbul all the way to Mongolia.
1: Thank you.
0: If you'd like to add a thought to today's discussion, you can post your comments on our website. Go to ricksteves.com and look for the message boards in our radio section. This is where you'll find our program archives and where you're welcome to add to any of our discussions. You don't need to register. Just go to ricksteves.com and you can be part of Travel with Rick Steves. Timothy from Ithaca, New York, emails us. And he asks, what are the top special places you recommend a person visit at least once in a lifetime? Well, Timothy, I mean, I've got to plug that book that I have nothing to do about except I envy it because it's selling so well. The, what is it called? See, the Thousand Places to See Before You Die. And uh, I met the woman who wrote that book, and she's done a great job of cobbling together all of the best places you'd want to see at least once in your lifetime. Personally, what would I see uh, at least once in my lifetime? Bali. Oh, Bali, it's just a wonderful, wonderful place in Indonesia. It's the Hindu part of Indonesia. Great contrast between Islam and Hindi culture when you go from Java to Bali. Sri Lanka, the teardrop at the south off of the south tip of India. Sri Lanka, wonderful, wonderful land. Um Kathmandu, capital of Nepal. What a wonderful place to go there. And uh, little side trips from Kathmandu you'll find towns that are just time warp experiences taking you right back into the Middle Ages. A ryokan. When you go uh, to Japan, you want to stay in a ryokan. That's one of the greatest travel experiences I've ever had. A ryokan is a Japanese bed and breakfast, but it is sort of a it makes you a king or a queen for for your visit, and it, it really is quite an experience. Uh, you dress in the traditional kimono and slippers, and you've got one small tatami mat floor room, but it becomes your dining room, your living room, and your bedroom depending on how the maid sets it up according to the time of day. You've got a little, uh, a cute little Japanese garden out your sliding glass door. And, uh, of course, before you uh, dine, you will go into the uh, bath and you will soak all of your stress away. Don't go to Japan without going to a traditional ryokan. And a very important place for me personally is to go to some place that is struggling. Uh, I'm going next week to El Salvador. To me, to go to El Salvador with a... Uh, Uh, a good uh, leader and and a chance to get in and and find out how the struggle of the people is uh, playing out is a fascinating opportunity and uh, if you give me a choice to lay on a beach for a week on the west coast of Mexico or go further south and and find out about how some of these smaller nations are are taking their uh, people's needs into their own hands, you'd find me down there in the streets of El Salvador seeing what's going on that way. We have some fun ways we'd like to encourage your participation in Travel with Rick Steves. When you go to our website at ricksteves.com, the radio section has a place you can submit one of three things we're looking for from our listeners. A hometown brag, an audio postcard, and traveler's haiku. Write up a paragraph or two about where you live, record a minute or two of natural sound that makes an intriguing audio postcard, or write us a haiku and send your submissions to radio at ricksteves.com. If what you send makes it on our show, we'll send you a gift certificate worth $20 to use in the travel store at ricksteves.com. So, again, we're looking for your submissions. For all the details, see ricksteves.com. Our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. We're looking forward to hearing from you. You certainly don't need to leave the USA for striking views and fascinating cultural differences. Next up, we're venturing much closer to home in the southwest of the United States. It's time for another visit with Jamie Jensen, author of Road Trip USA, as we get more information from the expert on exploring our own country. It's travel with Rick Steves.
5: Živjo, ja sem Tina Hiti in prihajam iz Bleda, iz Slovenije in potujem z Rikom Stivsem. So that was Slovenian, And my name is Tina Hiti and I come from Bleda, Slovenia, and I'm traveling with Rick Steves. Živjo, jaz Tina, pišem se Hiti, prihajam z Bleda, iz Slovenije in potujem z Rikom Stivsem.
0: I'm Rick Steves and this is Travel with Rick Steves and we're enjoying talking to all sorts of travelers from all over the United States. Get in on the conversation. Give us a call toll-free. Our number is 877-333-RICK. That's 877-333-7425. Or send us an email. It's easy. Just send us an email at radio at ricksteves.com. Let us know what you're thinking. Email us radio at ricksteves.com. Lisa from Fayetteville emailed us and here's what Lisa writes. If you want the rainbow, you must have the rain, the old saying goes. So be prepared to be treated like a terrorist upon returning from the to the United States, particularly if you fly into Detroit. We missed our connecting flight because of all the new customs procedures. We didn't set off any alarms, this is now standard. It doesn't matter if you're a US citizen that hasn't had so much as a traffic ticket. It's gotten utterly ridiculous. On the bright side, entering Frankfurt and Athens is just a matter of having your passport stamped and a polite welcome, glad to have you here. And they wave you on in. I can't speak for other European airports as I've just recently had the opportunity to travel and have only been to the lovely two airports I just mentioned. Well, Lisa, that's the way it is. In Europe, and from my experience, it's just like your experience. Uh, In Europe, they seem to have wrote the book on uh, security. They've been on Orange Alert since the 1970s. And uh, they kind of snicker at a lot of the... uh, a lot of the precautions that American security uh, procedures are inflicting on all of us travelers. I honestly don't know what's necessary and what's not, but um, nobody in Europe has you take uh, your computer or laptop out of your bag or take your shoes off and this sort of thing. So maybe it's necessary. Maybe it's just um, helping us feel secure, but uh, we are moving into a new age and um, saw somebody with a pin the other day that said, One Nation Under Surveillance. Who knows where we're going? but one thing good about travel is it lets us better understand the rest of the world, and if you really don't like terrorism and if you're tired of all this security, the best thing we can do as uh, citizens of this great nation is to get out there and travel and come home and help our country fit better into this ever-smaller planet.
4: (laughs) ¶¶
3: Take me riding in the car, car, take me riding in the car, car. Take you riding in the car, car, I'll take you riding in
0: the car. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and right now we're traveling around our own beautiful country. And I've got with me the man who wrote the book on exploring our country by car, Jamie Jensen. Jamie wrote the book Road Trip USA. After 15 years of exploring our country by car, he's driven nearly half a million miles and is a fanatic about actually getting off the freeways and enjoying exploring the United States on the two-lane highways. Jamie Jensen, thanks for being with us.
2: Well, thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, right now I want to talk about uh, some of the wonders of the southwest corner of our country, and we've got some callers online and we've got some emails here. When you're thinking, Jamie, about traveling and making this classic road trip, uh, we all think of Route 66, don't we?
2: It's a wonderful, I mean, it's got a great theme song, hasn't it? Well, it
0: rhymes with get your kicks. Get your kicks on Route 66. So that probably was its advantage because there's a lot more to road tripping than Route 66. But when you think about Route 66, that is classic Southwest, isn't it?
2: It is. I mean, that is a fabulous route across the southwest because not only does it take you to the big destinations like the Grand Canyon and into Santa Fe, but it's a wonderful drive. You go through the old towns and they've still got the flashing neon signs that, you know, people really kind of, that vanishing Americana that people love.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit about those uh, national parks. Uh, David Young from DeSoto, Texas, emailed us and he said the east entrance to Grand Canyon South Rim has beautiful views. It's less crowded than the main entrance. What's your strategy on enjoying the Grand Canyon if you're driving around?
2: Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. You come in um, basically following the way the the little Colorado comes into the Grand Canyon rather than taking the main entrance, which they keep talking about actually banning cars from. For years and years, the road um, from the south, from Williams, They've been talking about closing that completely. So pretty soon, the old road, which I think is like U.S. 160, but it comes in from the east, and you ease yourself into climbing up onto the plateau with the canyon dropping away below. Hmm. It's just fabulous, yeah.
0: Now, Lisa from Seattle emailed us, and she said, when, when going from Phoenix to the Grand Canyon, go via Sedona and Red Rock Country. She says, that's magnificent. What's your take on that?
2: It is. Sedona is one of these. I mean, it's got a very kind of hippie flavor to it because a lot of people think it has spiritual significance. But it, it is a beautiful place with these red rock, sandstone outcrops, very sculptural against, you know, usually blue skies. And it's a lot prettier than, you know, racing along the, the interstates or however else yeah. you might get there. And it is along the way as well.
0: Okay, so don't make a beeline for the canyon because there's some interesting places en route.
2: There is so much, and I mean, the thing, if anyone's going to the Grand Canyon, the thing to do there is not just peer in from the rim, but actually walk down into it and spend some time. People spend, you know, two or three days of their vacation time trying to get to the Grand Canyon to see it. And there was some study done of the National Parks that I think the average stay at the rim of the Grand Canyon was something like 25 minutes. Which just seems ridiculous. It <laughs> you know, sounds if you spend absurd. all that time actually walk down into it, yeah. let it sink in, because it's very hard to know what to do with it otherwise. Now,
0: in your guidebook, do you give strate- strategies for where to park and where to hike and so on?
2: Yeah, I mean it's a busy place, so, and there's a lot of you know rangers who will guide you through there. I think it's the most popular of the national parks, but uh, everyone will tell you to get off and walk down into the canyon you know, and really let it kind of see the scale of it, because you just can't absorb it from the rim.
0: Now, Jenny from Minnesota emailed us, and she says, Zion and Bryce National Parks are the place to feel the Earth's pulse in rock and water.
2: Ooh, that's poetic, isn't that it? Yeah, yeah, Zion has always been my favorite. I mean, the interesting thing in Utah National Parks is that a lot of the names were given by Mormons who have their own unique kind of take on America and you know the world history, but Zion is just beautiful. It's like Yosemite in stone, in Red Rock Stone, rather than the white granite, and it is just splendid. And Bryce is different. It's a very different way it came to be. But, but either or both and anything else around that part of Utah is just fabulous.
0: My name is Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm talking with Jamie Jensen, the author of Road Trip USA. We're at 877-333-7425. That's 877-333-RICK. Or you can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. We've got some travelers standing by on the telephone, Jamie, so uh, I think we'll go to the phones. Great. We have Lori on the line from Normal, Illinois. Thanks for your call. What are you thinking about?
5: Well, I wanted to um, talk about the uh, Santa Fe Trail. Have you ever traveled down the Santa Fe Trail or up it?
0: Jamie,
2: I, I have yeah. That's one of my, one of my. In fact, across Kansas, I, I take I seventy being a nice drive across Kansas. I do old U S fifty and fifty six, which you're basically following right in the roots of um, the old wagon ruts all the way from Kansas City down through some you know wonderful little towns in the, across Kansas through Dodge City and west, and then getting up into the mountains. So yeah, that's a wonderful drive. And, yeah, and
5: a, yeah. Well, actually, it starts in Arrow Rock, uh, Missouri. Which is where the trail actually started. And Arrow Rock is—have you ever been there? It's it's this fabulous little village that's just been preserved in time. It's like going to a a living museum. And but that's where the trail actually started. And then, but when you yeah you get on 56 in Kansas City, and and uh, what I love about the trail are all the historic sites, the the national historic sites on the trail, and 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 um, you don't have to go very far to find them because they're just scattered all up along the trail.
2: Yeah, and this was probably the most significant cross-country route back, you know, 150 years ago, and from Kansas City area down to Santa Fe, New Mexico, Yeah. And, you know was in use until the railroads came through, and they basically followed the same route, and you know, so the the history continued along there in in those places. So no, it's a great place to. You know, find your way.
5: Yeah, we took our children on on a trip. It's a great trip to take kids on. Why is that? Because there's so many places you can stop, and, you know, kids can only go a certain distance before they want to get out. And really, they're all up and down the trail. There are forts, there are historic sites, there are ruts that they can see. There are just so many things. We spent a week, and the kids were never bored, and um, they had a wonderful time. And actually, you can. You can see the different. like, uh, Fort Osage is a wooden fort, and then Fort Larned is built of stone, and then uh, Fort Union, which is the, well, Fort Larned is in the middle of Kansas, and then Fort uh, Union, which is in New Mexico, is, a, is an abandoned fort, and they've just let the, it's a build of adobe, and they've let it go to ruin, but it's just, it's so beautiful. Have you been there?
2: I have here, just north of Las Vegas, New Mexico, it's Yeah, and it's it. just, it's just such a out beautiful,
5: there. beautiful sight, and it's so authentic. And Indeed. then um, no, the old
2: fort, one of my favorite forts, not to cut you off, but it's uh-huh. Bent's fort up in the where, where the trail got up into the mountains of Colorado. Just fabulous. You know, along the Arkansas River, as I learned to call it, not Arkansas River, but they like to focus on the Kansas. That's <laughs> the, what the route, the, the Santa Fe Trail followed a lot of the way. And there's just, there's all sorts of history out there in mm-hmm. kind of different
5: stages. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's wonderful. The Benz fort is interesting because it they've restored it. And so you can go there, and they have interpreters, and, and it really is—there's just so much history on the Santa of Trail. It makes a wonderful trip.
0: And a wonderful trip for a family, you're saying. Yes. How old were your kids when they did this, Laurie?
5: Well, they were, I'm guessing, about 8 and 11, and I had them keep journals. Um, and, and my older son wasn't much into the writing the journals, and he—you know, he— He did it, but he wasn't that interested in it. But my younger son really got into writing the journals. And uh, when we got back a a couple of years later, we found out that Cobblestone Magazine was doing an issue on on, uh, the Santa Fe Trail. And he wrote up an article and got it published.
0: Wow. Very good. You know, that's one thing. We we'd actually bribe our kids to write a journal as part of the precondition for getting extra allowance when we go <laughs> on vacation. <laughs> yeah. And I, I just think it's really a good discipline for kids in their travels to uh, make a point to journal each day and, and write down their thoughts and impressions and so on.
5: Right. And even the son who wasn't into it that much did. I think he likes to look back at it. And, and so, certainly Andy enjoys looking at his journal.
0: Oh, it's a precious souvenir of that trip
2: yeah yeah one thing i 've got the six year old boys who are just starting to write, but one thing we try to do with them is uh, get them they send postcards to themselves from various places. <laughs> so it's kind of it's less of a chore they get to, they get actually get to buy something which seems to bring them endless joy but they choose a postcard and just write what they were doing that day and you know mm. when you look at it even you know a week later you remember things that you've already forgotten you know that's it's what i did to get it down.
0: that's what i did on my first trip to europe when i was 14 years old i collected postcards and uh, just filled them out each in the back and it gave me a wonderful uh, as you said excuse to go buy something and a beautiful photographic uh, you know a souvenir of the trip and exercise to write in the back of each one Sounds hey Laurie, thanks so much for your call. Thank you. Happy travels. You too. Bye bye. Thanks. I'm talking with Jamie Jensen, the author of Road Trip USA, a thousand-page manual on how you can explore our country by car. Jamie, I've got this notion of the Panhandle of Texas as being quite windy and desolate and tumbleweeds and, and so on. What's that like, Amarillo and so on? Uh,
2: that sounds pretty much right. There's, I think they make uh, you know wind power headquarters of a lot of places, but it's you know thriving cowtown culture and. People of, of my kind of inclinations go to Amarillo to see um, the fame, most famous kind of roadside sculpture in America, Cadillac Ranch. What's that? Which is 1150s, um, uh, 60s Cadillacs buried nose down in the Panhandle Plains just west of Amarillo right alongside Old Route 66.
0: So that's just sort of kitsch or funky modern art?
2: It's kitsch, funky modern art, but also a kind of real comment on our throwaway society that these wonderful mm. sculptural objects that people you know, they'd all been found in a junkyard for i think they bought them for fifty dollars for all of them yeah. picked them up and stuck them in the ground and
0: yeah. uh, overnight tourist attraction
2: yeah and, and a great one and quite right. a good comment on our kind of car culture disposable culture and it's it's quite pretty in a certain light too
0: now carmen from port townsend in washington emailed us and is interested in uh, the the hopi indian reservation and uh Canyon de che Chaco Canyon, Taos Pueblo, and so on. Um, says He says it's an amazing combination of culture, history, and scenery. What's your experience in enjoying uh, the uh, Indian cultures of our country?
2: Yeah, I, mean, I would I would agree. It, it it is amazing. It can be hard to get access to. They're, they're pretty private. I mean, I think there's something like maybe 12,000 Hopi left kind of preserving their lifeways, and there's, you know, quite a lot more of the Navajo. But these people, you know, they're not tourist attractions. They're trying to live a certain way, so navigating the kind of protocols you know people often say no cameras in the village and I think if you're traveling around you really have to respect the rules that these people lay down. Yeah
0: I felt that very much at Taos when I was there as a fascinating sight, a living culture but boy you really felt like you were uh, um, privileged to be there and it's very important to be sensitive to um, their wishes and and what their comfort is.
2: Yeah I think definitely to remember that and not to bristle when they say you know well it'll be twenty dollars if you want to take pictures you know they're not shaking you down for the money but you know, you are getting a lot out of your, for your $20 in these places. You're getting access to, you know, thousands of years of, you know, American culture. What we used to call the Anasazi, they're now calling the Ancestral Puebloans. So people, the Indian Native American tribes, are kind of claiming their culture back from, you know, the anthropologists. And it's, kind of, it's quite interesting now to see this happening.
0: We've got David on the line in Dallas. David, thank you very much for your call. What are you thinking about for road tripping?
2: Well,
4: uh, you know,
3: Dallas is uh, typically thought of as a business destination. A lot of big business occurs in Dallas. A lot of people take uh, business trips here. Mm-hmm. We also have some amenities here that uh, that any tourist would like. And one of the new new sites is the Nasher Sculpture Garden on the ni- north side of downtown. Huh? And uh, it's right next door to the Dallas Museum of Art, and it is uh, it is one of the premier sculpture gardens in the United States. It has a beautiful beautiful garden area that uh that uh, sculpture is presented in uh, plus an indoor gallery where uh uh where uh, pieces are also on view. Uh, well worth the effort to see that right down the street from uh, from the Nasher is the uh, Martin Morton-Meyerson Symphony Hall, which is a great symphony hall that uh, Dallas offers. And then there is a uh, a vintage trolley line, the McKinney Avenue trolley line that uh that uh, tourists can hop on and uh, travel down McKinney Avenue and uh, enjoy a lot of the uh, restaurants and shopping in the area. So it makes a a very very nice uh destination whether you're on uh, on business in Dallas or if uh, if you're just a tourist that happens to be uh, passing through Dallas on the way to some other destination.
0: And this sculpture garden is pretty new.
3: It's uh, getting uh, very good reviews in the uh, in the artistic community throughout the United mm. States and it's a very very special treat to go and see the uh, the uh, National Sculpture Garden.
0: Now, Jamie, if somebody's really into the road trip mode and they want to dip into a big city, generally do they uh, s- side trip in for the day and not spend the night, or what? What, what do you recommend in that case?
2: Well, what I do in, in my book, I have what I call survival guides, where I give you know basic information if you're flying in and out, or just want to see. You know, some people want to go see the JFK things in Dallas. Um, Thinking of the sculptures there. My favorite thing is there's a giant set of Longhorn cattle just walking through town, right past the um, convention center, full size, life size, kind of no signs marking them, but you just you think you're seeing things. So, mm. in cities in general, I think. You know, most people go there because they've got a reason to be there. Mm-hmm. So I kind of give them a guide to get through it if they're going to be there for a day or two. But, you know, in the case of Dallas, I, as well as its own attractions, it's got Fort Worth just down the road, which has some of the premier, you know, Western art museums, the Kimball Art Museum. There's some great things in Texas that not everyone's heard of.
0: Yeah. All right. Hey, David, thanks so much for your tip on
4: Dallas. Okay. Thank you. Okay.
0: Bye now. This is travel with Rick Steves, and we've been enjoying some ideas on exploring our own country with Jamie Jensen, the author of Road Trip USA. Thanks, Jamie, so much for helping us out.
2: Well, thanks for having me. Talk to you later. Talk
4: to you.
3: Ships and little boats chug along. Ships and little boats chug along. Take you riding on the car. I'm gonna zoom you home again. I'm gonna zoom you home again. Roll home, take you riding in my car. I'm gonna let you blow the horn. I'm gonna let you blow the horn. Well, I'll take you riding in my car.
0: Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds,
2: Washington. There's more online in the radio section at ricksteves.com. That's where you can look up information on today's program and listen again to this and other editions of the program, including a link to podcast versions of Travel with Rick Steves. You can also
0: submit your questions and comments for Rick from our website to be included on future editions of the show. And send us your submissions for our 15 Seconds
2: of Fame department. Details are at ricksteves.com. The people who help bring you Travel with Rick Steves include Sonia Grosset, Rachel Unk, and Robin Stencil, with technical support from John Weist and Jonathan Lee. Our theme music is composed by Jerry Frank. I'm your producer, Tim Tatton. Join us next time as we travel with Rick Steves.
0: Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.